1 Thessalonians 5. It reads this way. We'll be in verses 12 through 28. Um, So it's 12 through the end of the book. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. And I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So it had been a long, it had been a long day. Um, there are classes, weightlifting, conditioning, practice, and then a subpar calf meal. And I was making my way back to my dorm room. And as I walked through the double doors and down the long hallway, I got to my room and I could hear the sound of a guitar and what sounded like nails on a chalkboard. This was my roommate who was learning how to play guitar and sing worship music. It was awful. And it was one of the main reasons why, outside of the fact that I didn't love Jesus, I didn't care for Jesus, I didn't want to know Jesus, that I stayed away from my room. But for this, for this reason, for some odd reason, this day, I decided to go into my room. And I went straight to the desk at the end of my bed, and I sat down. I put my headphones in, and I started typing away, pretending like I was a good student. And my roommate wasn't alone in in our room. Uh, There was someone there who was sitting on my bed who was teaching him guitar. And within a couple minutes of me doing my studious thing, my roommate gets up and leaves. And I'm left alone in this room with this guy that I sort of knew who he was. And within a couple seconds, I got a knock on my laptop. And with sort of that, like, why are you bothering me? I'm too cool for you. Look, I pulled my headphones out and I said, yes. And he said, who are you? And I thought to myself, who are you? Like you're sitting on my bed and now you're bothering me in my room. Like, who are you? And what the reality is, is I knew who he was. He was part of a Christian group on campus but he really wasn't asking me who I was in the sense of what's your name. He knew who I was. He was getting at something deeper with me. And I had known enough answers to sort of slide by with, hey, this is, this is I prayed this thing or I did this thing or I, I know this thing about Jesus But the thing is, is my answers didn't satisfy him. By the end of our conversation, he said, who are you? And he goes, what about Jesus? And I thought to myself, I don't know what about about Jesus. And so a part of my story actually draws on a comment that John made last week. So if you didn't hear his sermon, he talked about this idea of a get out of jail free or get out of hell free card that many people inhabit when it comes to their concept of Christianity and even their relationship 
to Jesus. This was my life. Jesus was far off to me. He was a distant religious figure. He got me out of hell and into heaven, which quite frankly, friends, I didn't even believe in. I didn't believe in a hell. I didn't believe in heaven. I didn't even really believe in Jesus. But Christianity checked the moral box for me. So if I could identify as Christian, I at least had some sort of moral ground or moral thing to stand on. So Jesus was filed away for a rainy day in my mind, or he was pushed off in the darkest recesses of my heart to one day never really be touched. Essentially, he was my insurance policy for when all things hit the fan. And I don't know if you know this, I have life insurance. My life insurance has not changed any bit of how I live my life on a day-to-day basis. Maybe it has for you, but it hasn't for me. And if I treated Jesus like that, that's exactly how I thought about his effects on my life, on who I was, who I am how I lived moment by moment in between the day-to-day grind, between what was inevitably my birth and what will one day be my death. Your insurance policy doesn't actually change your life. It doesn't bring earth-shattering peace even to know that I have an insurance policy because I still have to think about the reality of, oh, I die, I leave my family. I leave my kids, I leave behind so much on the table. It doesn't actually bring me peace. It actually brings me more anxiety. (laughs) Yeah, I leave money, but I'm not there anymore. That was me at 19 years old in my dorm room. And maybe that's you. Jesus is far off. And when Jesus continues to stay a distant figure in our lives, we can functionally live as if there is no power or influence that he actually has on our day-to-day life. The smallest thoughts to the biggest choices don't actually matter all that much to Jesus. They don't, it doesn't matter if I believe in him or if I believe he's returning or coming back or if I've given my life to him. It doesn't affect my day-to-day. And if Jesus remains a distant figure in you and I's life, can change actually happen? Can we actually change? Or what about, what about the pains? What about when pains of life happen and Jesus is a distant figure? Or the struggles or the future uncertainties about life that bring us apathy or unrest and anxiety and fear? What about those? The problem is, is we don't know, like those in First Thessalonians, we don't know when Jesus is coming back. And the problem is, is we, if we're really honest with ourselves, we believe he's that far off, that he's that distant, that he's really not here right now in this space, doing something in us and through us and to us. And it was the same for that young church plant that Paul wrote to in 1 Thessalonians. They didn't know when Jesus was coming back, which produced apathy in them, in their ethics. Which is why Paul, at the, verse, at the first part of chapter four, says, I care about your sexuality. I care about the way in which you're working, the way in which you're using your hands in the world. Is because if Jesus is really coming back, if you are really Jesus's, it really matters right now in your thoughts, in your actions, in your deeds. There was even this, this reality within the church in Thessalonica that there was an unrest because people had died and they weren't sure when Jesus was coming back. So what does that mean for the people that died? Or is Jesus actually going to come back? And I'm really uneasy that the world is still very painful, still very broken, still very hard for me to navigate. I'm living in the society to which I have been rescued out of. So where's my peace? How do I deal with this? So Paul spends the first three chapters of 1 Thessalonians, getting at the question of, who are you? And he answers that. And he explains that to them within the first couple verses. He says in verse, or chapter 1, verse 4, you are loved and chosen by God. 
And that's foundational to the rest of the book for them to understand who they are because of Jesus. He isn't chastising them in the first few parts of the book. He's actually saying to them, keep doing this. Keep embracing, keep living, keep focusing on Jesus and living that out. Do that more and more. He's saying to them, don't lose a sense of who you are as you work out who you are among one another and the world around you. Don't lose a sense of who you are as you work it out. And what that and who you are and I, is an identity question. And who you and I have been created to be is to be image bearers of God. You and I were created for God to find our identity in him, to have our desires, thoughts, and actions informed by him. So while we wrestle with the disaster and the decay and the sin of here and now, we can actually be changed. Like who you are fundamentally in Christ matters, and it is changing you day by day by day until Jesus returns. And here's the, here's the kicker. It's not on us to change ourselves. It's not on us. And we'll, and we'll see that here as the book ends. So our future is actually bound to God. God has staked his entire life on you and on you being made holy for his sake. He's put his entire reputation on the line. He shed his own blood to have you reconciled back to him, to be made into his image. He's staking all that he is on you, even though he doesn't have to. He's committed to you. So our, identi our identity is defined by what God does to us. The relationship he has with us and the future he has secured for us in Christ. That's a sigh of relief that our identity is based on what God does to us, the relationship he has with us, and the future he has secured for us in Jesus. And by God's grace in Jesus, you and I can taste right now the sweet honey of new creation. Like we can taste it. We have been given a new creation identity and we can taste the sweetness of that creation now. Secured for us in the future that Christ is going to usher in permanently. We can taste that now. So as Paul concludes this letter in 1 Thessalonians, he wants the young church and us here, Christ Church, to know this one thing. And this is the big idea for the entire sermon. So if you don't listen to anything else I say, at least walk away with this encouragement. The God of peace will be faithful to sanctify you completely. The God of peace will be faithful to sanctify you completely. So a quick definition. What do I mean when I say sanctify? What, what am I saying? And this is my shorthand. Uh, there's so many other technical definitions. Westminster Confession has a great one, but this is my shorthand. And, it, and it's by the grace of Jesus, so sanctification, is by the grace of Jesus, the progressive change of our whole person, our whole person to reflect Jesus. It is by the grace of Jesus, the progressive change of our whole person to reflect Jesus. That's what I mean when I talk about sanctification. And so I will use the word change and I'll use the word sanctification synonymously here. So how does then Jesus sanctify us till he returns? How does Jesus sanctify us till he returns? Well, we'll look together at three things based out of these verses. We'll look at the context. We'll look at the contours. And then we'll look at the champion, the champion of our change. The context, the contours, and the champion. So if you've got your Bibles and it'll be up on the screen, uh, look with me at verses 12 through 14. So let's consider the context for our change. 
So as we delve into this section, repeatedly we actually encounter the word brothers. It is a reoccurrence five times just in these handful of verses. And what's being said here when you hear the word brothers is something very important. And it's actually still fitting in the entirety of the letter is that Paul isn't just writing to an individual. He's writing to a group of people. He's writing to a young church. And so he says brothers, he's not saying the boys club or he's not saying to men only. He's using a term for brothers and sisters. He's using a term for familial connection, familial love, like your blood family here. But this blood family is blood by the blood of Jesus. And so this sets the context for all that Paul is saying your sanctification will happen in. And so within this community, we can then discern a few different people or groups of people that aid in our sanctification. So firstly, let's look at verse 12. We encounter those who labor and are in authority over you and admonish you. These are leaders within the local church. Now, before we get a little squirmy and dismiss the reality of authority or leaders over us, because I know our cultural moment is very anti-authoritarian and it's it suspects the motives of leaders, I understand that it may make it a little hard for some people to hear Paul say, accept those leaders among you. Highly love them. I understand that. I wish I had more time to delve in to the pain and the struggle and the betrayal and the things that you have experienced as it relates to church authority and to authority in general. But what I want you to know is that I see you and I hear you and I feel you. And what Paul has done way back in chapter chapter two, go back and read chapter two. He gives them the type of leader that should be among them. One that you can trust, one that you can esteem, one that you can love highly. And this leader is one that serves. And serve is the key word here. This leader is what Paul says is both motherly and fatherly. This leader is one that is not out for selfish gain or greed or for their own influence or their own honor, but they're here for you to present you blameless as they walk with you towards the return of Jesus. They're here for you, for your good, for your sanctification. When Paul urges us to esteem them very highly in love, he's not referring to the pastor's performance and the pastor's giftings and the pastor's ability, but their posture. How have they postured themselves among you? Are they servants? Are they loving? Are they caring? Are they admonishing you? Are they encouraging you? Leaders who humbly position themselves under Jesus' authority will strive to admonish and to labor for your sanctification as we await the coming of Jesus. So our leaders within the local church context are there for your change, to help you along the way as you journey towards the return of Christ. So the second thing that we see though is look down at verse 14. Here we see Paul employ the terms idle and faint-hearted and weak. So what message is being conveyed here to us? If we reflect on the context of 1 Thessalonians, we'll recall that this church held concerns about the imminent return of Jesus, which significantly impacted their daily lives. And when he talks about the idol among them, he's talking about those who say, well, Jesus is coming back tomorrow. I'm just going to chill. And the next day they say, well, Jesus is coming back tomorrow. I'm just going to hang out. You, can, you, can you pay my bills? 
can you mow my grass? Can you take care of me? Even though I'm fully capable of it. What Paul is saying to them is to admonish them, to say, no, friends, we don't know when Jesus is coming back. And it is for your sanctification that you continue to work out what it means for you to be in Christ, alive in this world, working peaceably, minding your own affairs, working with your hands, recalling back what Paul talked about earlier. So he's in, we're encountering the term idol because he's suggesting that they need to work and that they're saying, what's the point? Well, the point is, is that Jesus is, is on the move now in this world, working to restore and recreate, recreate it. So we must work too. And then there are the faint-hearted, those individuals, those among us who are worn down, exhausted by the constant shadow of death. I think about my own family. I think about my own wife, my own life, constantly tired of sickness and of pain and of wondering, if I say this out loud that it's gonna be better, usually the opposite is happening. It's usually getting worse. The sickness is actually happening or that cancer diagnosis or whatever it might be. Maybe you can relate too. What Paul is saying is that we need to bear up and be an encouragement to the faint-hearted. I need the encouragement as much as you need the encouragement. To one another, we encourage each other because we still live in a world of decay, of sin, of death. Though Jesus has conquered all of that and is making all things new, we still feel the effects of a fallen world. And then lastly, the weak. Those who cannot help themselves. Those lacking the strength to carry on. Those often finding themselves marginalized, overlooked, outcasts, lost. He says, help them. And they're among you. Help them. Admonish, encourage, help. The, the thing, the people that we, honestly, if we are honest with ourselves, the people that we don't want to help, the people that we will think are more of a problem than they are someone to be cared for. That is not so in Jesus's church. That is not so with Jesus himself. There's not a single person to which Jesus will look on and say, you are too small. You are too weak. You are too faint-hearted. You are too idle that I won't bend down to you and say, lift up your weary head. Strengthen your weak knees. Let me help you. Let me carry you. Let me change you. So too it must be for us. So consider then a sports team, the context of a sports team as we think about the context of our sanctification. You get coaches, and, and I'm sorry, I'm a sports guy. That was my life. I grew up in the context of teams. You get coaches and teammates and others who work in harmony together for the growth and development of one another to achieve something together. And oftentimes in my mind and in my experience, I was so enamored and tired of my coaches nagging me, pushing me, admonishing me, encouraging me, helping me, correcting me. Sometimes I hated them for it. But what were they doing it for? They were doing it so that I might become a better athlete, so that our team might become a better team. And my teammates, you may have heard the adage, uh, you're only as strong as your weakest link. That is true. It's not one thing for a super varsity Christian over here to go, well, I'm good. I'm going to hang out and do all this stuff. And there's some other person over here who's flailing and, and weak in their faith. And for them to just say, well, I'm going to keep pushing on. It's about me and not go over and help them. We are only as strong as the, weak, as the weakest person. So we are here for one another. And, if, and when a team embraces that reality that it's not me, but it's we, a lot of things change. And that's just in a sports context. That's just in a sports context. How much more in the church? 
in the church that Jesus has bought with his own blood, in the church where there is actually true and lasting power for change. And there actually is an answer to every longing and every weakness of the human experience. How much more would that be for us? So, I think I lost my place. There it is. This underscores, friends, the importance of admonishing, of encouraging, of supporting one another. So you may have noticed in between verses 12 and 14, there's verse 13. And in verse 13, it says, be at peace among yourselves. Why is this significant? It's significant because Paul understands the human heart. He is not surprised by our struggles with authority, our impatience with one another, our tendency to overlook the least, the last, and the left out. He's not surprised. But it is through the word peace that the fragrance of the gospel permeates the church. It is through the word peace that the fragrance of the gospel permeates the church. Jesus did not come to sow chaos in the midst of his body. He did not come to sow division in the midst of his body. He did not come to sow strife in the midst of his body, but rather he came to bring peace. John 14, 27 says this, and it's a very familiar verse to some of us. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. My peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Jesus, the ultimate authority, relinquished his power to serve, keeping us in mind. He endured strife, backbiting, betrayal, abuse of power, corruption, and the weight of sin. In his body, the church, we find sanctification through the peace that weaves together the most unlikely people. In his body, we find the peace that sweeps us up into the narrative that he is writing. He takes our anxieties, our frustrations, our fears, and he says, my peace I give to you. My peace I give to you. So friends, the church serves as a primary context for Jesus to bring about transformation through submission to the leaders among you as they serve and admonish and teach and preach and lead you and move you towards Jesus. And by you and I bearing with one another, those who are weak, those who are idle, those who are faint-hearted, and he promises peace. He promises that within this context that we pursue these things together, there will be his peace. And that is a counterculture in and of itself to a world that is unrest and a world that will not care for the marginalized and the hurting and the broken, but will abuse and will misuse them. So let us love one another learn from one another, uplift one another, and live out the peace of Christ that surpasses all understanding. But not only does Jesus give us the context for change, he also creates the contours. And so by illustration, contours, there are multiple sort of jobs that use the frame and the terminology of contour. You think of art, you think of facial contours, and so essentially what I mean when I say contours is the shape or the outline representing or bounding the form of something. A contour is the shape or the outline 
that is representing or bounding something. So what does this have to do with our change? If contours and arts and maps and engineering, etc., all represent the shape of something, then what Paul is communicating to this church as we look at verses 15 through 22 is the shape of following Jesus, of what it looks like for you to live out who you are in this, in this world. How? So consider this for a moment, the phrase, do not repay evil for evil. Jesus, in the moment that he was betrayed by Peter, it's a familiar story, did, did not go to Peter and go, I'm going to stab you in the back now. I'm going to betray you for the evil that you put towards me. No. What did he do? He called out to Peter when Peter was fishing. And Peter jumped out of the boat and ran to Jesus. And what did, what did Jesus remind him of? Not that he had betrayed him. Not that Jesus was going to backstab him or bite him or devour him or repay him evil with evil. No, he said to him, do you love me? And he said, yes. Do you love me? He said, yes. Do you love me? He said, yes. And he restored him at the place that would have probably brought him the most shame, next to a fire where he would have been constantly reminded that he betrayed Jesus. Or if you even want a more specific example, Jesus standing silent as a crowd calls him to die. One of the greatest evils is putting an innocent man to death. What does Jesus do? He willingly dies. He willingly sheds his blood for those who would do the evil to him. This is what Jesus did. Or maybe we can consider the call then to rejoice or to pray without ceasing or to give thanks. If we are careful readers of this epistle, we could see that Jesus is at the core of Paul. Jesus is at the core of Paul. And Paul models for us and this young church this very thing. If you thumb back to verses or chapter one, verse two, when he says, rejoice, I've been praying with you or praying for you. I give thanks for you. Or look at chapter three, nine and 10. He uses the same terminology, the same contours. He's rejoicing. He's praying. He's thanking. And what this list should communicate to us is not some unattainable, unattainable standard that we have to have, that we must do perfectly. No, it's not perfection, it's consistency. It's consistency. He's not saying you need to be perfect in doing this. He's saying this is the contours, this is the shape of your face of what it looks like to be in Jesus. This is consistent with Jesus. Rejoice, pray without ceasing, give thanks. Paul is saying to the Thessalonians, your life, my life, our life is not about trying to avoid failure or sin. No, it's about living into who you fundamentally are. That's what it means. It's, the Christian life is not about just avoiding sin. It's about living into who you fundamentally are. So because Jesus has purchased your freedom on the cross, you are free to rejoice. Because Jesus is at the right hand of the Father interceding on your behalf, you are free to pray and to pray constantly and to keep praying. And because Jesus took the keys of the only thing in this world that could bring fear to you, death, you are free to be thankful in all things, in all circumstances. Even the seasons that get dark, even when the bills pile up, even as you hold that brand new baby, even when the pain won't subside or you get the long-awaited bonus, all that is good, all that joy, all of that praying, all of that thanking him is what Paul says is the will of God in Christ for you. These are the contours of you. Jesus, doing good, rejoicing, 
praying, giving thanks. And if you're here and in Christ, everything, I mean everything, is pushing you deeper into the life of God. Everything. If you are in Christ, there's not a wasted thing, good or bad, that is not pushing you deeper into the life of God, who, through Christ, has redeemed you out of the pit of sin and death. The only thing that could actually lead you to despair and keep you from rejoicing, keep you from praying, keep you from thanking, keep you from actually pursuing good would be the fact that you are bound by sin and death. But friends, in Christ Jesus, that is not true of you anymore. So you are free to live into it. Stop trying to not sin and live into the life that Jesus has called you to. And this is why Paul continues to encourage them to not quench the spirit is because this life in Jesus is empowered by the spirit of the living God that lives inside you and me. He says to not quench the spirit. And we know if you're really in Christ, you know what that feels like. You know what that feels like when the spirit of God is moving you towards doing something and you have an urge to not do it or a tendency to think yourself out of it. Or he says to listen to those who have a prophecy. Now, prophecy means a lot of things to a lot of different people. And within this context, prophecy is going to be connected to the will of God for you in Christ. And that will is that you would know Christ Jesus, him crucified, died, and resurrected. That is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. And when somebody is speaking to you in a prophetic way, in a way that speaks the word of God to you, it is going to agree with that very statement. And that's why Paul says after that, test everything. Know your Bibles. Stay in the word. Again, living into something. Don't beat yourself up because you didn't get in the Bible today. Just live into the reality that God has given you the Bible and his very words are there to speak to you. And when you know that thing and when the spirit of God is living and active in you and is bringing to life the very fruit of the spirit and bringing to mind the very words of God, when somebody comes to you and says this, thus saith the Lord in a very literal, like small, thus saith the Lord way, you will be able to test that very thing and walk by the Spirit and not be shaken. So stay alert. Test all things. And in short, this is what Paul is saying, is live into the Spirit-empowered new creation life. Live into it. Don't deny it. You have the Spirit of the living God in you. And it is the power to change you from one degree of glory to the next. Live into that reality. So there in 2 Corinthians 5.17, this is that new creation reality that Paul speaks of. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and behold, the new has come. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. In the present, in this very moment, not it is out there one day for you to obtain. It, is, it has come and it will come to completion as we will see here just a few verses later. It will come to completion, full completion on the day that Christ returns. But you live in a new creation reality now and you can taste it. And that's what he's saying these contours are. The contours of the Christian life are marked by Jesus with goodness and joy and prayer and thankfulness and spirit-filled dependence. We just need to stop trying to earn our way into a good Christian life. Jesus has already earned our good Christian life. We need to just live in him. It sounds mysterious. That's because it is. 
the less control you actually have, the more you actually allow for God to shape and form you and move you in the way that he wants to move you. Let's stop trying to earn a good Christian life. Let's stop gritting our teeth trying to not sin. It's exhausting. I'm not saying do not fight sin. What I'm saying is stop trying to grit your teeth as if you are the only one who is in charge of changing yourself and that you are the only one who is actually fighting your sin. No, God hates your sin more than you could ever hate it. And he is more committed to killing it than you could ever be committed to killing it. So let's stop trying to earn our way. And let's, in the effort that grace propels us in, just live into a new life. So when you taste the freedom given to you in Jesus, it's about living from that grace, not earning it. It's about living from it. You already have everything you were created for in Christ Jesus. And these are the contours that Paul talks about. But knowing my own tendencies and probably knowing yours as well is that that's really hard and we want to keep working. And we, and we constantly find ourselves butting up against the fact that it feels like it's on my shoulders to change myself. That it feels like even though I know that Christ died to save me, it still feels like I have to justify the fact that Jesus died to save me. Maybe I'm the only one here who feels that. But not only when we hear the context and the contours, do we feel that sort of burden of like, okay, I need to make sure that this church is the right place for sanctification or that I'm actually staying within these contours of what it means for Jesus? No. And this is what leads us to the last point. Look with me at verses 23 and 24. And this is the whole crescendo of the entire book of 1 Thessalonians. This is the crescendo. And this is Jesus is the champion of our change. Now, I tried to be good with my alliteration, which is why I chose champion. Could have probably chose a totally different word. Um, Actually, last night I thought, man, I could have done that. There are three or four other ones. I won't go there. That's the sidebar. But Jesus is the champion of our change. So what is a champion? It's not just in our modern thought of the Cubs won the World Series, now they're the champions of the world. Or so-and-so's team won this thing, and now they're the champions. No, actually, the word, if we take it as the noun, the word champion means one who fights on behalf of another or others. One who undertakes to defend a cause. That is a champion. One who fights on behalf of another or others, one who undertakes to defend a cause. So as we close the letter of 1 Thessalonians, we see Paul change the subject from the imperatives of this is, you should be this, you should do this. And he takes the young church and he moves their gaze from what what would be our tendency to, which is to think this is all on me, I have to do this. And he takes their gaze and he moves it to their champion. Who is their champion. It's God. If you are anything like me and you're a good American, you want to be self-made. You want to prove yourself. You want to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You want people to look at you and you want to say, look at me, look at all that I've accomplished, look at what I have done. I've made it. That's the water we swim in. That's the culture we inhabit. We all love, well, maybe you don't, and maybe only I do. We all love the started from the bottom, now we're here. Success story, right? That's what we live in. That's what we're about. And that mentality, friends, spills into how we view our relationship with God. And many of us will say, It's by grace through faith we have been saved, but only saved. I still have to work out my sanctification. I still have to try really hard to be a good Christian. It's all of the things that I've already hit on. It's now my time to earn my keep, to show God I'm worthy to be called a Christian. No, I try harder. I do better. We've all felt that 
especially when we sin or if we fail. I'll just try harder. I'll just do better. That's the opposite of the gospel, my friends. The opposite of the gospel. The gospel is not try harder, do better. The gospel is this. That there's nothing you or I can do. There's no try hardering or doing bettering to win God's favor for us. Jesus came. God came. Jesus, our champion, one who fights for another. Remember the definition? And one who undertakes to defend a cause. Jesus undertook killing sin and death on our behalf. Jesus undertook on that cross the guilt and the shame and the pain to which we were to bear, but we couldn't bear. Jesus went into the pangs of the one thing that we are the most fearful of if we think about it, to death. And Jesus came out on the other side. He's not saying to you, work harder, do better. He's saying to you, give up. Come to me, trust me, lean on me, be satisfied in me. See me as your champion, as the one who is going to do it all, as the God of peace who will sanctify you completely and in your whole spirit, soul, and body make you blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. He who is faithful, he will surely do it. Friends, that is the gospel in a nutshell for us in this moment. There is nothing about you in that except for the fact that you are the beneficiary of it. Receive it. And the best way that I can even illustrate this is by quoting or taking an image of C.S. Lewis. If you didn't quite get that. So in the voyage of the Dawn Treader, there's, an, there's a scene and a portion of the book where Eustace is talking to Edmund. And Eustace has been consumed with himself and is turned into a dragon. And Eustace cannot change himself. And in a far off distance, Eustace is telling Edmund, he's like, I saw this lion coming. And he didn't say anything to me, but he took me up this mountain. And he said to me, you need to undress. And he thought to myself, I don't have any clothes on. All I have are these scales. And so Eustace, at the top of this mountain with the lion, started scratching at himself, trying to take the scales off. And every time he got a scale off, it just fell on the ground and a new scale came back. And a new scale came back. And this is where we get these words. And I'll read them to you from C.S. Lewis. He said, and this is Eustace. He says, so I started scratching myself and the scales began, began coming off all over the place. But just as I was going to put my feet into the water, I looked down and saw that they were all hard and, through, and rough and wrinkled and scaly, just as they had been before. Then the lion said to me, I don't know, <clears throat> but I don't know if it spoke. You will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back to let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right to my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I had ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you've ever picked the scab off of a sore place, it hurts like, <laughs> it hurts like Billy, 
oh, but it is such fun to see it coming away. I know exactly what you mean, said Edmund. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off. Just as I thought I had done it myself before, three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I, as smooth and soft and as peeled as, <clears throat> as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. And then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on. And he threw me into the water. And it smarted like anything, but only for a minute. After that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw, and then I saw why. I'd turned into a boy again. What is this saying to us? Jesus, our lion, our champion. He is the one who can and will claw the scales off. So who are you? That was the question that was asked to me. Who are you says a lot about who and how you live. And so I can only think of as we, as we close, how someone could pen such beautiful words. Horatio Spafford, he penned the words for it is well in the midst of his wealth and grief. And I can only think of how he got to that place to pen these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And Lord, haste the day that my faith shall be sight that the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, that the trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. I can only think that he took to heart verses 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace sanctify himself, sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of of our Lord Jesus. He who is faithful, he will surely do it. Let's pray. Father, we come to you humbly, trusting that you will surely do it. We ask that you would do it. We submit ourselves to you humbly with open hands and open hearts. We're tired of doing, trying harder and doing better. We just wanna receive the grace that is only given to us in Christ Jesus now from you. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.